Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast series on impact, talking with entrepreneurs and organizational leaders who contribute to building a more cooperative and positive future. I'm Ursula York, the host of this series. I'm a mentor to business people who want to have a positive effect on the world around them, building strong businesses by creating value for their clients team members, and the larger world. I am so passionate about sharing with you the stories of entrepreneurs and leaders who have impact, their inspiring and energizing role models. I hope you use what you learn here to be inspired about what you can do in your business and beyond. For ongoing inspiration and support to get clear on your impact and put it into action, enter your name and email at workalchemy.com. Today's guest in this podcast series on impact is David Lamott. David is an award-winning songwriter, speaker, and author. He's toured all of the 50 states as well as five of the seven continents. BBC Radio Belfast praised his charm, stories, humor, insightful songs, sweet voice, and dazzling guitar ability. In 2008, David suspended his 18-year music career at its peak to pursue his other passion by accepting a Rotary World Peace Fellowship in Australia. As part of that study, he also spent time working in rural India. In 2004, David and his wife Deanna founded PEG Partners, a nonprofit organization that supports literacy, critical thought, and artistic expression in Guatemala. He recently completed six years on the Nobel Peace Prize nominating task group. David has published three books. One of them, White Flower, tells the true story of a creative and whimsical response to a Ku Klux Klan march in Tennessee by a group called the Ku Klutz Clowns, C-O-U-P-C-L-U-T-Z Clowns. His most recent book, World Changing 101, Challenging the Myth of Powerlessness, is being used as a textbook at colleges and universities and as the basis of workshops and speaking that David does around the world. So welcome to the podcast, David. I'm so delighted to have you here. It is such a treat to get to have this conversation with you. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. So tell me, I mean, you've got such a varied career. You're, you're a musician, you're a speaker, you've written um, several books. How did you come to this kind of work? It's It's been a bit of an evolution, I would imagine. Yeah, I, I think the answer is gradually. <laughs> um, uh, it, it has been a pretty varied path. I guess I'm a generalist, um, and I, I'm fascinated by a lot of different things, and I tend to follow what fascinates me um, in the moment, but I also try to follow it through once I set down a path. So um, music has taken a big chunk of my life, and I'm grateful for that uh, adventure. And then piecework has has lately been a, an, another big piece of it. Um, and that, that's really a reemergence of a long held passion, but, um, yeah, it's been, it's been quite an adventure. Well, uh, tell us a little bit about, um, I mean, you're, you've been a musician for a long time. You've had, um, lots of opportunity to be up on stage in front of people sharing your work in that way. But this whole other realm of, uh, I mean, it's kind of an interesting career for an entrepreneur because you're, you're blending your music in with speaking about, um, conflict resolution and, and, uh, world changing. How does that, how does that work for you in terms of your business? How does it, how has it come together as, part of of one piece 
it really is constantly evolving and um and and it's interesting in some ways it has come together as as being of a piece and in other ways it really hasn't it's a it's a I sometimes go to a conference or lead a weekend retreat or something where I'll do both things, but I don't generally do them at the same time. Um, I, I am, a, a, I guess I have been described somewhat as an activist by some folks, depending on which definition of activist you use, that's accurate or not. Um, but I am also a professional musician, but I'm not an activist musician <laughs> in the same way that I'm a person of faith and I'm a a musician, but I'm not a Christian musician. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. <laughs> um, it's, I, I really want to hold up art as having its own value and, and not just have it be a, a vehicle and a means to an end, um, to sell some point that I'm trying to get across. So, uh, I, I, I guess my favorite art is invitational and it's, it makes room for the listener's story. It's not just about my story. So, um, I always want to, I want to make good art, you know, and not just have it be in service to a message. I love that. My favorite art is invitational. That is so much the way that you carry on conversations with people. I mean, I've I've followed you on social media and you're, you're really engaged in quite deep conversations with people about difficult topics. And how do you find that as a medium for sharing your thoughts and and whatever message you might have in those contexts. I find it really extremely challenging. Um, And I've written about it a little bit. I wrote a blog called Hospitality in My Digital Living Room, Mm. kind of uh, addressed some of the – I I wanted to be able to point people to um, here's where the boundaries are. If I was having a a conversation that was getting toxic – on social media, I wanted to be able to just link to this and say, look, this is what feels okay. And this is what doesn't feel okay. Um, and these are where I draw hard lines, uh, for how we're going to have this conversation. And I really think that when we're having difficult conversations in any medium, sort of setting the ground rules for how we're going to have the conversation is, is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually had a conversation with someone I love and have long relationship with recently that I knew was going to be difficult right up front. And I, and I sort of, I said, Hey, if you want to have this conversation, uh, great, let's do that. But here are a couple things that I need to feel like this, that I, that I need to establish in order to have some hope that the conversation is going to be productive. And, um, and we agreed together that, yeah, this is, this is a fine way to approach this conversation. And when it strayed from that, I said, Hey, look, we made this agreement. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and that really did allow us to have a much more productive conversation than I think that would have been otherwise had we not come to that agreement mm-hmm. about the meta conversation. You know, what, having the conversation about the conversation is often really important. Yeah. Well, it kind of sets a framework for people's behavior. And that seems to be something that is um, under scrutiny right now certainly scrutiny is probably too mild a word it's it's really um something that we're seeing a lot in the public arena of um norms that where people have accepted for a long time being uh those boundaries being transgressed and and um so what you say about setting boundaries or or establishing the framework for a difficult conversation can be um really help keep both people in the conversation and 
feeling like there's mutual respect there. Yeah. And, and I, I, I do think that in some ways we've, we've kind of created the worst possible venue in which to have conversations that are complicated. In what way? Um, it, if, if you imagine, um, so the way I think about Facebook, for instance, is that, I, so I've got my maximum allowed 5,000 friends on Facebook. When people try to friend me on Facebook, they get a message saying, no, you can't do it. He has too many friends, which is just <laughs> bizarre and troubling, but that's the way Facebook has decided to do things. And then there are about um, 3,500 people, I think, last time I looked, that follow the Facebook wall. So there are about 8,500 people um, potentially in that conversation. So if you imagine an auditorium with 8,500 people in it, and each of them is holding up a photograph in front of their face of their choosing, and each of them is holding a live microphone, yeah. And now I say, okay, um, uh, let's talk about Israel and Palestine. <laughs> <laughs> there are 8,500 people each holding a live microphone, holding a photo up in front of their face. That's what a Facebook conversation is like. And so to have any hope of having a productive conversation in that context, I do think we've got to be quite intentional about how we have it. Um, and that's challenging. Uh, but but you're right that I have had some really moving and important conversations that felt respectful, and and I think even if we if if we never convince each other, I think that's fine. If we can rehumanize each yeah. other across lines that that we disagree on, uh, disagree on, that has value. You know, I think dehumanizing each other is the most dangerous and and destructive thing we can do and rehumanizing each other is often the most constructive thing we can do. And that leaves room for transformation. But people are very seldom rejected into making better decisions. You know, we, we have to, I think transformation happens in the context of relationship. Mm-hmm. So I, I sometimes come to a point where I need to cut off a relationship or even block somebody from my Facebook wall, but I'm pretty reluctant to do that. The very first thing I do is to invite them in a side room and out of the auditorium, you know, can send them a private message and say, hey, this is really hot. I'm wondering if we can have this conversation one-on-one and not be interrupted by other people who might have other viewpoints or agendas. Can we just have this conversation as a private message? Mm-hmm. And that's often much more possible. Yeah, when it's human to human rather than, um, as you said, this large forum. I, it was very vivid, that example that you gave that, that kind of auditorium full of people all with a live microphone. I said to you before we started that I love talking to a writer because that, that word, those words were so evocative. Um, it creates a real image. Well, that whole rehumanizing, I don't know if you've uh, had a chance to listen to any of Brene Brown's interviews around the release of her new book, but she talks about that quite a bit. And I, I think one of the things people have struggled with is how do we find a point of connection when our views are so different? And that rehumanizing that you mentioned, that's the point of connection, that we're talking with each other, human to human, and that's a place to begin. Yeah, I entirely agree. And and I guess in conflict resolution work, we often talk about um, uh, the difference between positions and interests. So your position is... Um, I 
want to buy that car for not more than $2,000. Your interests are, I got to get my kid to school and I got to get to work. Um, I got to get to the grocery store. Um, the latter are much more uh, human and they're creative ways to address them. The former, the position is often quite rigid. And so if we can get to the interests, you know, the person selling the car might uh, need to sell it for more than that for various reasons because they've got um, medical bills they've got to cover. But it might turn out that the person buying the car is a doctor and can help provide some of that medical care. Right. It might turn out that the person selling the car um, drives right past the person's home and work every day and they could carpool. You know, there, there, there are ways to get to um, more constructive ways forward together that have to do with um, our interests. And, and again, that has to do with finding ways to look past the rigidity of the positions and engage with people's humanity. Well, and there's a lot of creativity in that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Necessarily. There has to be. Um, the theologian and, and nonviolence scholar Walter Wink uh, spoke really powerfully about that. He said, you know, what comes most naturally to us most of the time as biological creatures when we're faced with aggression and threat is, of course, fight or flight. There are other responses, but those are the two overwhelmingly most common ones. And Walter Rink said that, yes, we have to come up with third-way responses, neither fight nor flight, but something more creative. And because they don't come naturally to us, they fundamentally require creativity. Mm. Love that. That's a great quote. Well, in this work that you're doing, this, um, I mean, you, you, you're working on many levels. Um, is there, how do you feel that your work impacts people? I mean, this podcast is about impact, about making a positive contribution or um, making a difference in the world. Do you, what are your thoughts on, on how you might be playing a role in that? Well, I suppose it's for other people to decide how much impact I'm having. Um, the, I, I do get neat feedback from folks, and it is encouraging to feel like I'm helping folks through the struggles that we're all facing. Um, the, the impact that I hope to have is different in different parts of what I do. Um, I do want, overall, I do want to help in the work of rehumanizing each other. Um, I think the arts play a significant role in that. They're extraordinarily connectional and can remind us of our connectedness in really powerful ways. Um, you know, when, when you hear a, a tender song, say a song about somebody's um, missing someone who died, uh, if that brings a tear to your eye, as it commonly does for folks, you're not crying for the songwriter's loss or the singer's loss. You're crying for your own loss mm -hmm. that they touched on. And, and that moment of connection, of, of rehumanizing each other, remembering that you're not the only person in the world that, that, that feels this loss, um, that's, that's really comforting. And, and it also um, allows you to access your own emotions. And when I, when I see people crying at my concerts, um, which happens from time to time, my first thought is, wow, I'm even worse than I feared. I'm so <laughs> But then uh, later, sometimes I realize, no, actually, this is a good thing. And my sense of it is that, um, that those tears are in there. And if you can help people get them out, that's a kindness. You know, it, it's not that, they, that you're putting them there. <laughs> right. 
they're there and they're trying to get out. And so I, I was deeply moved by music as a kid and as a young adult. And so I think it was a natural evolution for me to want to play it. So, so that's, that's one piece of what I'm doing is, is trying to help people feel things they need to feel. But I'm also trying to help people think about stuff that I, I have found has been revolutionary for me. Some, some ways that I've come to see things differently that have been significant for me. So I share those in the hopes that they may be significant for other folks. And I'm getting feedback to indicate that it seems that it is going that way. And a lot of that work is really about, um, well, the subtitle of my book is Challenging the Myth of Powerlessness. And I think that's really what that is. We, I think we've internalized some narratives that are deep in our culture that are profoundly disempowering. And so I'm trying to deconstruct them, um, historically based, evidence based, to look at how history actually works and how our lives actually work and offer a better narrative. Um, and a truer narrative, I think, that does not disempower us so profoundly. Well, I know you you have a passion for doing work with um, students, with um, college age kids. How does that feel to you, or what are you hearing from them about the work that you're putting out there and and talking with them about? That's a joy for me, a particular joy. It's probably my favorite age group to work with, although I also work with folks who are retiring and trying to figure out what they're going to do with their retirement years and such. I enjoy those conversations too. But wow, college students are just so intellectually alive and um, they are experiencing things deeply. They are deeply invested emotionally in the world around them. Um, our current generation of college students are incredibly civically engaged. They um, they really care and are tuned in and are learning about things that um, because they're growing it through a different time, um, I get to learn from them, from their experiences. I, I often, when I'm welcoming a group of folks, I, I'll do a what I call a diversity welcome at the front of it, which is a thing I learned from folks at Training for Change, and I've modified it for myself over the years, and I kind of welcome all the different kinds of diversity in the room. When we talk about diversity, we often think about uh, gender diversity and, and orientation diversity and uh, racial diversity, but there's so many other kinds as well, right? There are diversity of experience and economic diversity and, and just the diversity you bring on a given day, you know, who is has just gotten terrible news about somebody's illness in their family, who um, is really excited about an opportunity that's just come up for them. Um, we're all walking in the room with all of that. And I try to name a lot of it as I'm um, moving into those kinds of spaces to, to indicate that um, not only that everybody is welcome, but that uh, and that that each person is welcome, but that all of each person is welcome. Mm -hmm. um, and when I when I do that, one of the things I do is I I welcome the wisdom of age and the energy of youth, but I also welcome the wisdom of youth and the energy of age. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I do think folks my age have a lot to learn from college students right now. Um, they've got a lot to teach us. Different lives teach different lessons, and I want to learn from them as well as offering the lessons I've gleaned from history and from my own experience. I love that wisdom of age and energy of youth and the wisdom of youth and the energy of age. That is great. And it's so true. There's such diversity in that. And I, I love that you're welcoming 
every aspect of ourselves because there's a, a kind of sense in a business setting, especially you bring a part of yourself or you bring, okay, now I'm the business person. Now I'm the front-facing, customer-facing <laughs> kind of person. And uh, I don't think that works for people anymore if it ever did. And uh, it's it so speaks to the holistic nature of being an entrepreneur, I think. Yeah, and I think as as a lot of our communication is uh, actively superficialized, um, we're longing for authentic connection and to be real with people and for people to be real with us. That's uh, that's no small gift. Yeah, absolutely. I I'm I'm curious about. Um, I mean, clearly, what you're bringing into your work it's so values based, and I've I've talked about this before where. I see values as a, as a foundation for impact that you're having impact, whether you know it or not. And it comes out of what you value, what you see is most important. And I, I know you've been very conscious and, and you've uh, devoted energy to being clear about what you value and communicating that. What, how do you bring that into your business? How do you bring your values into your business? That's an interesting question. Um, so uh, access is, is important. Who is able to get to things and who isn't? And uh, that makes it really challenging as a self-employed person. Um, how do you price your services? How do you get there? And um, at times in my business, we've done it different ways, but sometimes there's a range um, that we've offered people. Yeah, David can come to your, speak to your group for between this price and that price. And we've allowed people to choose. And it was astounding how often people would choose on the high end of that scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I remember at one point, my sister, Kathy, was actually uh, handling my booking in those days, working for me um, through a, an incredible kindness of her part. Um, and so uh, she was, she reminded me only recently of a conversation she had with a guy one time where she explained, yeah, there's this range. You can pay anywhere in there. And she didn't say, you know, we'll need your financial statements to determine whether you're worth <laughs> lower price. She just said, yeah, there's, there's a range. And the guy was like, well, but you, but you, why would anybody pay anything less than the small, anything more than the least amount? And, and she said, well, you know, that's really up to you. People make choices for lots of different reasons. Lots of people do, but you really don't have to. It's fine. You can choose the lowest number. And and the guy just could not conceive of that, um, at being a workable model. Recently, I've had this, um, website for a, a banner that I created called let's be neighbors so there's a website, letsbeneighbors.org, where folks can go and download the art to put this banner up. And the banner says a little more than that, but it basically is an invitation to community. And I've got one stuck on the front of my house, literally nailed to the front of my house, saying, um, no matter who you vote for, no matter who you love, no matter where you're from, uh, et cetera, let's be neighbors. This is what community looks like. I'll, we will do our best to be here for you. Um, so, you know, even if we've got different yard signs in our yards come election time um if your battery car battery's dead come knock on my door i'll come give you a jump you know that's that's what community is and that's not to minimize the real significance of those issues it's not saying um in spite of these disagreements let's make nice um that's not the point the point is again that transformation happens in the context of relationship we don't reject each other into making better decisions so 
let's do the hard work of being community. And it's just an invitation, again, to, uh, to come and, and be present. And people do. So uh, at any rate, I've created that website where people can download the art and print their own banner. And it says on there, um, pay what you want. You can put in zero dollars and download the art, and that's completely fine. Um, or you can put in whatever amount you want. And it's been really neat since we introduced that in the last few months just to see uh, how often people are saying, yeah, sure, this is awesome. Here, <laughs> here's, here's a little bit of money. And so I, I like that model, and I really want to grow that across a lot more of what I'm doing and say, yeah, you, you know, you decide. Well, I love that uh, that aspect you mentioned earlier about art being invitational. I think there's an invitation in that range of pricing that you offer of, well, you decide how important this is to you. You decide how much you can afford or you feel you can afford. Um, and it it. Uh, you know, I, th- I think just to just to have a conversation about this, I think the flip side of that can be, well, if you're introducing confusion into a pricing conversation, then it leads to people not making a decision. Have you found that that's to be the case? Yeah, yeah that's also true. Um, yeah, I, I think there's there's a time to say, yep, I need this for it to be sustainable. And um, and. You know, the way I think about it is in terms of pricing for me to come somewhere and, and do an event is that I have some responsibilities um, to the world around me. I have responsibilities to the folks that I'm in conversation with about possibly working together. And I have responsibilities to my family. Mm-hmm. And it's costly. I'm, I have an eight-year-old son. So it's it's costly for me to be away um, in ways that are both tangible and intangible. And so I need to be bringing something home to the family um, if they're going to be making that sacrifice. So there's a balancing of obligations there that, that I think has integrity in it. Um, <clears throat> though my, my fundamental nature is I always want to go everywhere and do everything. <laughs> <laughs> everywhere I'm invited. And, and that's really not sustainable over the years. Um, I do need to be honoring of my own family's needs and sacrifices. Mm. And your own energy too, which is a part of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's also true. And I, I when you wear yourself out, you you do work that's not as good, and I, that's not the model I want to have. Yeah. How do you um, how do you best use your time and energy? I, I guess one of the things that I think is so important in being able to able to have sustained impact is to um, manage your own energy or or to treat it in a respectful and honoring way, just as much as the work is treated in a respectful and honoring way. How do you do that? How do you find that it's best for you to um, work with your own energy in a way that you can help sustain it? I'm an introvert in an extrovert's line of work. Um, and that's an interesting thing. And it's fascinating, actually, that most performers, when you test out large groups of of musicians and actors and such, most performers test out as introverts. I find that really quite fascinating. And of course, it, I, I know you know that uh, introvert doesn't mean that you don't like being with people. It means that that's where you get your energy and, and uh, from being alone and rather uh, rather than an extrovert who gets energy from being with mm-hmm. people. I'm, I'm kind of toward the middle. I also get... Um, energy from being with people, but I test out as an introvert and I need to honor that. I find that, um, 
that my time is best spent either in authentic engagement with with people, with a group or with individuals, or in solitude. But it's not best spent in casual engagement. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's easy for me to burn and waste time in silly um, in in social media conversations that are not constructive and significant, um, it's easy to to burn a fair amount of time in in that way, and I uh, I'm trying to dial that in a little bit because it is so incredibly addictive and seductive that um, that little endorphin hit we get from the the connection that comes through social media. I love that. Um your energy is not best spent in casual engagement. And I think that social media is so it does draw you into that very readily. Yeah. A lot of it is quite casual and, and really not nourishing to me. I, I feel drained afterwards. I don't feel nourished. And what I'm trying to do and encourage other people to do is to really notice what is it that makes me come alive? What is it that, uh, to borrow Howard Thurman's phrase, to make me come alive, what is it that really nourishes me and restores me? Um, and, and then actually schedule that, you know, put it on the calendar, block that in. Um, because we, we need to pay attention to how it is that we nourish ourselves if we hope to make decent contributions to the world around us. Um, that's, I, I like this phrase, personal sustainability. Mm-hmm. Talk about economic sustainability and environmental sustainability, but we really do have to think about our personal sustainability if we're hoping to contribute to the world around us. It's not selfish to do that self-care. Yeah. And how do you do that other than spending time alone? Are there other things that you do that um, actively support that? Or is it more of a, a taking away or a stepping away? Um, it is often a stepping away. I mean, I really am nourished by my work. I love being with people in workshop settings and I love being, being with people at concerts, um, those conversations really matter to me and I'm passionate about them and watching other folks, um, shift and question and, and push back and educate me. And, you know, that, that is really meaningful to me. So I am deeply nourished by that, but then coming home and getting really quiet, I do have a meditation practice, um, in the mornings that I am trying really hard to be steady with. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then a little bit of physical exercise in the morning helps a little bit too, in terms of my own general sanity. Um, a walk in the woods when I can get it, but I'm, but this is, this is the crux of the challenge. Not, um, not just for folks I'm talking to, but for myself is looking at where that is nourished and then actually scheduling mm-hmm. it, not just, expecting it to happen when I'm done with my work. Because, of course, when you're an entrepreneur, you're never done with your work. So so you really have to schedule breaks and time off. And and that can be challenging. And I I, I really believe that as a workshop leader and such, I I do not come with the model of, hey, I've really got this dialed in. Look how successful (laughs) I am. Let me share my secrets with you. That's not it. Um, I want to be authentic with the struggles that, that I've got because I'm struggling like everybody is. I think that's just part of being human. There's some stuff I've learned that I've figured out that works for me. It may or may not work for you. I'm happy to share it. I want to hear your story and learn. Um, but the main thing that I've learned is the value of that connection um, itself, you know, independent of the content. 
Yeah, and um, I, I love that you said, yeah, I'm not arriving as a, I know everything, let me share with you how awesome my life is and how it works, and you can do this too. And I've gotten to the eye-rolling point where <laughs> when I hear that, it's yeah. it's like everyone has things they're dealing with and uh, things that they are challenged by. And, and how humanizing is that when we can share that kind of experience rather than the, well, here's the package of how it all works and here's what you can do kind of thing. Yeah. And and that's a lot of what I'm doing in my speaking work. Um, I'm trying to challenge the, the cultural narrative we have of how you deal with large problems, which is a hero narrative. When you've got a big problem, you, you need to, you need someone extraordinary to come and do something dramatic in a moment of crisis, and that's how you fix the problem. And that has never happened in the history of the world when dealing with a large-scale problem. People have sometimes done dramatic and heroic things, for sure, but their function is not to fix the problem. Their function is then to inspire the rest of us to get involved. Mm -hmm. And when a lot of people do a little bit each, that's a movement, and movements are what change the world. Movements are what actually address large-scale problems. So just grokking that, really, and I, when I'm doing workshops, I take a look at some historical examples of, of stories that we've stripped facts away from until they become hero narratives, although they weren't hero narratives, they were movement narratives. Right. And and that's, uh, when you add those facts in, it's just shocking how 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 wrong the story is as you've learned it. When we tell the wrong stories, we take the wrong lessons. And when we ask the wrong questions, our answers don't matter. So I'm trying to ask better questions rather than offer answers, but, um, but also really challenge these narratives because they are destructive. And it's profoundly empowering when we realize that the way you make a difference is by doing small things serially. Mm -hmm. Well, I know you have, um, I mean, let's, let's dive into an example of that. And, and this isn't to necessarily go this way, but I know you have a strong affinity for Rosa Parks story. And that's an example of what you're talking about is, can you share a little bit about that or another example sure. just to kind of bring it alive for people? Yeah, well, I think that's, that's one of my favorite examples. Certainly the Rosa Parks story, we, we tell that as, um, this little old black lady was tired on her way home from work, and she decided that she wasn't going to give up her seat so that a white man could sit down in it as she was supposed to on a bus in Montgomery in 1955. And that um, spur-of-the-moment act of defiance gave flame to the civil rights movement. Um, there are so many problems in that narrative uh that it's that we don't have time to go through them all right now, <laughs> but um, but uh, one of the things that they did not teach me in elementary school when I was learning about Rosa Parks was that she had been an activist for twenty years before that day. She had been the the Montgomery NAACP secretary for twelve years before that day. Uh, she had been to the Highlander Center three months before she was arrested to train in nonviolence and voter registration, which was a life-risking endeavor in her time and place. Um, she had been in the game for a long time. She was deeply trained in nonviolence. So uh, this was not a spur of the moment in, in that sense uh, decision. She did not plan to get arrested that day, but she was so ready when this thing came to pass uh, and, and it's really instruction, instructive, I think, that when the bus driver threatened her with arrest, in the moment of decision there, 
her precise response to her to to him her four words that she spoke were you may do that hmm. those are four very simple words but they're so pregnant with significance when you consider what all that means you know what she said was uh, in effect in my interpretation was look i'm making this decision and it has big consequences now you make a decision and your decision has consequences. You have to make a decision and you have different options you can choose. Um, but this is my decision and you don't get to make my decision. Yeah. Right? And, and I think it's extraordinarily powerful. You may do that is what she said. And I ended up writing a song about that later. I, I found that so inspirational. Well, it also brings but, home to him that in this moment, you are at a moment of choice here. And in this moment, you can choose to do that or... You can choose not to do that, and that is up to you. It's not something that you're being forced into, or this is a personal choice moment. That's right. And and Rosa Parks, my respect and admiration for her has only deepened as her story has complexified. But what she said was, look, you know, that day wasn't so different for me than many, many other days of my life. What was different was that all the people showed up. Mm which points to the significance of the movement. And I find it interesting that um, nobody has ever heard of Joanne Robinson, who was the head of the Women's Political Council in Montgomery. It was Af uh, a collection of African-American women, um, what they said, called in those days colored, which is an offensive term for lots of reasons we could go, go through. But, um, but uh, Joanne Robinson is the woman who actually called the Montgomery bus boycott, and the Women's Political Council had had it organized for a year in advance. They were ready to hit go on that at any point, and they chose that moment in consultation with other folks. But uh, Joanne Robinson, actually, the night that, that Rosa Parks was arrested, she was arrested, I think, just a few minutes before 6 p.m., um, Joanne Robinson met two of her English students. She was an English professor at Alabama State. They met at midnight at the college and asked the guy with the keys to the copy room to come down. He unlocked the copy room and went home. And the, and the three of them made tens of thousands of flyers for the one-day Monday boycott um, from midnight to 4 a.m. From 4 a.m. to 7 a.m., they drove them all over town and dropped them off at the homes of the neighborhood captains that the Women's Political Council had involved. This is a few, do few dozen women of color um, who, who did this work of organizing day in, day out um, for years. And so they were completely ready to launch this thing. So from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m., all those team captains were delivering those in their own neighborhoods. So by 8 a.m., 14 hours after Rosa Parks was arrested, everybody in the African-American section of Montgomery had a flyer in their hand about the boycott on Monday. Yeah, which is an amazing example of community coming together in a way. And right. and, and it wasn't just a, a impulsive event. It was the result of months of, of organizing and conversation prior to that. And drudgery, you know, undramatic efforts day in, day out for a change, moving the ball forward just a little bit, being ready. Um, being really well organized, knowing who your team is and uh, what their strengths are and, and how you can make this thing happen. Um, that's really how you change the world. That part that feels so boring and ineffective is actually the part that ends up mattering hugely because if, had, had all that not been in place, 
Rosa Parks would have been arrested, you know, there would have been some local furor about that and it would have gone away. Mm-hmm. Instead, she was on national newspapers around the world. Yeah, and, and kids are still learning about her. And, and, he- and kids are still learning about her and, and starting to learn about some of the other players. I'm still not hearing much in schools about Joanne Robinson, but um, we are starting to, to I'm finding that um, when I ask an audience, uh, how many of you have heard of Claudette Colvin? The younger folks are more likely to raise their hands. Claudette Colvin was a 15-year-old girl who was arrested about nine months before Rosa Parks was arrested in very similar circumstances. And nobody's ever heard of her because she was uh, not lifted up by the movement as the emblem because they didn't want to destroy a 15-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it would have been so rough on her. And she also um, was not quite as... Uh, disciplined in nonviolence as Rosa Parks was she when she was arrested she was um, screaming bloody murder murder and and uh, letting the folks on the bus know the full extent of her vocabulary so (laughs) different kind of experience not the quiet grace that uh, Rosa Parks is portrayed as having so exactly she was a woman of extraordinary dignity she just radiated dignity and and people um, responded to that in powerful ways but but I think it's significant to note that the actions were the same, but the impact was outsized for Rosa Parks's arrest because of the movement. Mm-hmm. So, and a movement is a lot of people doing a little bit, bit each. That really is how we change the world. Um, and I should say, by the way, as a, as a historical side note, to give um, Claudette Colvin her due, I mean, yes, that was a, a very brave thing she did. And she was, she was spurred to action because a pregnant woman had been asked to give up her seat. Uh, so that a white woman could sit down and she was just so offended by that. Uh, I just didn't, it, it just pushed her last button. And, and so I honor her, her resistance. Absolutely. But I also should, should note that she was one of the five plaintiffs in the court case that later settled the dispute with the bus company and changed the laws around transportation and segregation in the United States. Yeah. Which so uh, talk, she she did make her contribution in a beautiful yeah, way. Yeah, talk about impact. I'm I'm recalling what, something you said earlier around your letsbeneighbors.org site with the the banner that you make available to people. That you said transformation happens in the context of relationship, and I think when we think of transformation, we think of um, kind of personal self realization or or some kind of a personal shift, but I'm also thinking in the context of being part of a movement, of being in community, of being in relationship with people, um, that's transformative, not just um, societally, but also personally as well. Both. Yeah. I think that's absolutely yeah. right. Um, and, I, and I think different kinds of interactions are called for in different contexts. I mean, I don't, I don't think if you're in Charlottesville and the, and the, uh, neo-Nazis are screaming and threatening you physically that that's the time to say, well, tell me more about your childhood. You know? <laughs> I, I don't think that's the proper response. To that. However, I should say, I have a friend, uh, Scott Shepard over in Tennessee, who is a former grand wizard of the KKK who, um, now does anti-racism work. And, um, you know, it was personal re- relationship that, showed him 
what a fool he was being. And, and in his own words, um, because he got a DUI and uh, had to go through residential treatment and went through that with two men of color who he really resonated with. And he felt like their stories were very similar to his and he came to love and respect them. And he realized what an idiot he'd been. And, uh, you know, that I think we've got to keep in mind that if we're going to heal society, we got to heal individuals within society. And it's not about deserving forgiveness. That's not the point. It's about how do we actually make the changes on the, on the largest scale. Well, in your book, White Flower, you make the point of, of uh, this group in Knoxville, Tennessee, who approached a Klan gathering with a very sort of humorous kind of uh, approach that was quite different from the let's also get angry and get into a combative situation. It, it speaks to um, how there's many different ways you can approach a situation that is transformative and uh, maybe more uh, appropriate for that kind of scenario um, that can actually make yeah. a difference. And and I think the goal there was not really to convert the Klansmen, yeah, right? right? The goal in that situation was to subvert their, their messaging because mm-hmm. what they're putting out is toxic and really needs to be responded to. Um, so that was the goal, um, in that context was, you know, to, to shut that down effectively, but that the, the word effectively is important there. You know, it's not a question of, do you have a right to be angry? Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody's got a huge right to be angry at that. Um, the question is what actually, what actually helps? Um, and, and I've come to believe that, uh, fight nor flight are very effective. Again, returning to Walter Wink, it's those third way responses that are most often uh, going to make the the best impact. So what happened in Knoxville was that um, there was this neo-Nazi and Klan rally. This was on May 26th of 2007. And the counter-protesters came dressed as clowns. One group of the counter-protesters came dressed as clowns and they sort of acted like they couldn't quite understand what the Klan was saying, and um, then they decided that they had it figured out and that this was a great reason to have a rally, and they would join right in. So when the Klan started shouting white power, the clowns started shouting white flower, and they pulled out bags of flour and threw them in the air and had a big flower fight with each other in the street there. So immediately, all the sort of rage that the Klan is trying to stir up gets kind of dissipated and um, people are laughing. And that's the last thing that the Klan wants. Mm -hmm. And so they they worked that gag for a minute and they said, no, I think we heard them wrong. It isn't white flower. This is actually a rally for white flowers. And they started handing out flowers to everybody. People are smiling. And then they said, no, it wasn't that at all. It was tight showers. They held up a camp shower and people crowded beneath. And then they said, no, it wasn't that. It was... Uh, wife power and they all pull on wedding dresses and they're chanting wife power wife power and what happened was that the clan left an hour and a half early because they didn't know how to respond to this they love stirring up animosity they love feeling feared but they didn't know how to how to deal with being upstaged by humor and and so without insulting the clansmen they refused to take their ideas seriously and, and I think that was a really powerful example of a third-way response. It took a lot of creativity. It was funny. 
and it accomplished the goal. The Klansmen were extremely disappointed with how that day right. went. And, um, and, 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 and they didn't fail to respond, which I think is also important. Mm-hmm. People often say, hey, all they want is attention, just stay home. Well, if you actively organize a freeze out, if you make sure that nobody goes, you talk to all the businesses, make them close, you know, ask them to close, and you have people with flyers on you know, a two block perimeter handing them to people saying, please don't go down there. Can you go to this thing instead? We've got free popcorn over there and a free movie. Um, or, uh, or some organizers teaching you how to, um, respond to racism. Um, you know, that's a great strategy, but I think we justify our not wanting to deal with it and staying home, um, which isn't good enough because people are being attacked. And if people who you love or yourself are being attacked and you don't respond, that sends a message that, that this is okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that there's no will to, for things to be different, that there's no yeah. desire for things to be different. Yeah. They feel abandoned because they're being abandoned. Right. Yeah. And that's not good enough for me. Yeah, and it's such it was such a an amazing transformative response. I keep using that word, but it really was in the sense of this group arrives spouting hatred and and anti whatever. Um and uh, it was it was completely transformed into a humorous message that just took all the all the energy out of it, which was a really powerful way of responding. The third way, yeah. yeah. Well, um, the thing that I often end these these um, interviews with is just a reflection on what do you think as an entrepreneur, um, if you were talking to a fellow entrepreneur. What would what would be the thing from your own experience, from the variety of what you've come to know and learn? What would you share with them as as the most important thing to keep in mind, or or the thing that's been a really powerful guiding force for you in your business? What would you share with them? I guess I would come back to the to the hero and movement dichotomy um, because. In the end, I, you know, I, I was a young musician doing all of it myself, booking myself to go play gigs around the country and around the world. And and after a time, it just became too much to do. So I had to invite somebody else to do some of that and uh, get some team, get some help happening. And that was hard to let it go, you know, to trust people to make these kinds of decisions for me and to represent me in that uh, in that intimate of a way. And yet it was necessary. And as I've gone on and on and on in my career, I have realized how extremely important it is to be invitational and to include folks and to um, value and nourish other people's contributions and to trust them and to expect them to make some mistakes just like you make some mistakes right. and and to be okay with that and, and you know, dial it in as you go and keep getting better at what you do, but um, but to let a lot of it go. Because it really, it does take a movement. If you want to have a large impact, that's not about being a hero. It's not about doing it all yourself. It's about building a movement. And in order to build a movement, you got to give people a path. You got to invite them. You got to give them a reason to want to be there. And I tend to just work in terms of my team, in terms of people who are doing publicity or marketing or um, the various pieces of what I do. Um, I really only work with true believers, you know, I only work with folks 
who really get what I'm doing. I don't mean that, let me be ultimately clear, not in a religious sense. There's broad diversity there. But in terms of um, believing in what we're trying to do together. Um, and, and the folks who believe in what we're trying to do together, we're going to get good work done. Mm. That's a really powerful message. And I, I think it really ties in so well with what you were sharing near the beginning about being invitational, that your, um, your approach and, and marketing especially can be so fraught for entrepreneurs. I, I think that your invitational approach and, and really uh, drawing people to you who believe in what you're trying to do together is a really, uh, it's a really powerful message. So thank you so much, David, for everything that you've shared today. I think that um, this, these ideas about rehumanizing each other and, and bringing that to your work um, in an ongoing way in all the diverse parts of it is, is such a valuable thing and, and truly uh, will be transformative and is being transformative. So thank you so much for sharing all of that today. Such a pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation, Ursula. Yeah, my pleasure. I, uh, is there a way that people can get in touch with you if they want to reach out? I am really easy to find if you can spell Lamott. <laughs> that's the only thing. Um, but my website's davidlamott.com, and that's L-A-M-O-T-T-E. Or you can just Google me, and I show up lots of different places. But I'm easily found on, on social media and, uh, and on the interwebs. Wonderful. Well, thanks again, David. It's been such a joy talking with you, and uh, thank you for the work you're doing in the world. Likewise, Ursula. Thanks so much. Join us for more podcasts on impact. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast channel on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll be notified as soon as new podcasts are available. Thank you to everyone listening for being here. Until next time, to keep that positive flow of energy going in your business so you can have your own impact, join our community of entrepreneurs like you by entering your name and email at workalchemy.com.